Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. In case you've never heard me say it before, this podcast is free. I don't monetize it, so I don't make any money out of it. And importantly, I don't ask you to spend any money on it. So none of my content is behind a paywall. And I have the philosophy that if I've got a story or a guest has a story, it should be heard by as many people as possible, regardless of whether or not they've got any money to spend on it. In exchange for that, all I ask for is that you, if you enjoy it at least, if you hit the like button, leave a comment, share it with somebody who's like-minded. If you're on YouTube, then go ahead and subscribe and hit the bell button. And if you're listening to the podcast version, then please do leave a review of the channel because that helps me to build my audience. Anyway, I'll stop talking and leave you to enjoy. Star Baby, welcome back to 10% True. Good to see you again. Thanks. I'm just thrilled to be here. Uh, I, I say it with some trepidation because we joked during the week that this is rapidly or in danger, at least, the 10% True podcast of turning into the Star Baby podcast. But the truth is, my audience can't get enough of you. They're clamoring for more Star Baby content. And although I don't see the attraction, I don't understand why it's uh, so interesting listening to you. <laughs> they want it and I give them what they want. That's my job. So, hey, um, we, just just to cover this off, because people are asking about it, we are going to do the Star Wars episode. We're going to do the uh, the com the brevity com episode. We've already got on the Discord server a bunch of people who have volunteered for it. I think we have enough now. But if you are wondering about that, that's from the previous episode that uh, Star Baby was in. Um, then uh, there will be. In fact, it may have been two episodes ago that that you were in. You've been on three now, so I'm losing I'm losing track. It doesn't matter when it was. We're going to do a Star Wars brevity com episode. That's coming out. So if you're interested in that, then subscribe to the channel hit the bell notification button and we'll let you know when it's available. Today, we're doing something a little bit different in line with trying to keep things mixed up. And that is a virtual cockpit tour of the backseat of the F4G, which uh, Star Baby spent many hours in in combat and peacetime. So he's going to talk you through that. There's a possibility that might be a little dry, though, for some of our viewers. And Star Baby has previously told me that he's disappointed my channel. It does not have enough levity. There's not enough storytelling I'm going to address that, um, and he's introducing me to some other people. We're going to bring some more storytelling into the channel later on this year, if guest time allows. But we're going to start now then. So tell us, Star Baby, about your call sign, and tell us a couple of other little stories, just to kick things off before we get into the machinations of flying the F4G. Right. So uh, good. This is a good way to hook people so that when we get to the really boring stuff, they don't notice it's happened. Um, so... The call sign, obviously. So understand that we do not pick our call signs. Okay. This is not like, you know, I need a cool call sign like Maverick or Goose or something like that. We don't pick them. Okay. They are picked for us. And 
usually um, you get a call sign when you're first mission ready um, at a, an event called a naming ceremony, which involves everybody writing proposals in the doofer book. Um, and then a lot of alcohol being passed around, people get really wasted and you don't want to be the tail end of the naming line uh, because then you get crappy call signs. So my first naming was at a naming ceremony in Zaragoza, Spain, and I ended up with Spock, uh, which was perfectly acceptable. I mean, literally, I know Captain Kirk's serial number. <laughs> in fact, I know Spock's serial number, um, both from the episode Court Martial, in case anybody needs to look that up. But, um, you know, that was a reasonable call sign. And it lasted for maybe three months. So what happened is... After the Gulf War, and as we already know from previous episodes, click to see previous episodes if necessary, uh, that I missed the Gulf War. I watched on CNN with everybody else, and I had a major freaking complex about it that lasted for a decade. Uh, and so I volunteered to go. I mean, I showed up at Spangdalem. We're still in the desert calm period. I get mission ready in no time at all. I go to Green Flag. Uh, I don't embarrass myself. In fact, when our computer fails, it turns out I'm the only one who remembers how to use a circular slide rule. So I spin all the flight plans for the red flag. Uh, and now I have some credibility as a lieutenant. Uh, I may still suck, but I don't suck badly. Um, and so I jonesing to get on my first deployment and I, I arrange things and bang, end of 1991 in December, I'm going to go to Saudi Arabia and join the, the weasel squadron there. And so the Weasel Squadron at Dharan Air Base um, had been moved from Bahrain. So the Weasels fought the war from Bahrain in the south and Insulik in the north. Um, and they moved from Bahrain into Dharan. We'd moved into a bunch of uh, buildings called the Kobar Towers, fairly famous for unfortunate reasons. Uh, the Kobar Towers were seven-story, eight-story marble-floored apartment blocks built for the Bedouins. Of course, they were empty because the Bedouins are nomads and they're not interested in seven story apartment blocks. So those were waiting for us when we needed to move in uh, near the airbase at the edge of it, as a matter of fact. So we go in and we have two. It's a combined squadron. So we are the 3552nd uh, Provisional Fighter Squadron from guys from the 35th Wing in California and the 52nd Wing where I was at Spangdalen, Germany. And so you had a meet the other dudes aircrew meeting. And I walk into the aircrew meeting, um, first lieutenant on his first operational deployment, looking like a 17-year-old in his big brother's flight suit. And as I'm introduced, one of the pilots from the other wing, Mike Froggy Nolan, uh, says, star baby, for no reason that he has ever been able to explain. He just says it seemed right at the time. And the guys all look at, and it's like, oh yeah, star baby. <laughs> and of course I hated it. And so that means it stuck like glue. Now I've kind of grown into it because the advantage is every squadron has a Mongo, a killer or a psycho or a crash. So actually, if you, if you have a call sign like killer, we have to use your last name anyway. Does it mean killer Kane? Does it mean killer Quast? I mean, which killer are we talking about? It's one star baby. So at least I've got that. And as a, particularly as a captain, but also now still, I believe there is no such thing as bad publicity. Uh, so 
you know, star baby kind of got a rep and I would meet people, you know, all the time I'd introduce, I'd never laid eyes on them before I'd shake hands and say, Hey, I'm star baby. And they'd go, Oh, you're a star baby. Okay. That still happens to me. So in any case, a unique call sign, I kind of grew into it. I'm actually very pleased with the whole arrangement. Um, it did not happen in a naming ceremony. It happens just at random in Saudi Arabia. Now it could be worse. Uh, uh, and in retrospect, it probably could not be better. So I'm rocking on the call sign. <laughs> and is, is it true then that when you've flown combat with a call sign, it cannot be changed thereafter? No. It's not true. Um, it's, it's not true. I mean, you can make a legacy claim. Uh, but you often when you get a call sign, it's because you did something worthy of a new call sign often something that's not very smart, but it could be something that was pretty spiffy. Those are rare, um, you know, so you don't want a call sign uh, like FI, which I'm only I'm gonna totally leave to your imagination. Um, and so, you know, a renaming could be a blessing, but in most cases it's not. And it generally happens because like you rammed your pitot tube into the side of an aircraft shelter and bent it at 45 degrees off to the line. Uh, and you end up with a call sign of pedo. I mean, that could happen. Could happen if your name's pedo day and you're flying at Spangdalem. So that actually worked for him. What about your so so any other um, drawbacks? Let's say to your youthful looks. Did you get uh, teased um, by oh, some yeah. of the ground crew? Oh, I'm glad you brought this up. So when I was in uh, the RTU, which is a replacement training unit. Um, that's that's F4 conversion training. So before you learn the F4G, you have to learn to fly the E model. I mean, gun equipped E model. Um, and so I would show up and, you know, I'm 20 or I'm in my early 20s, you know, maybe I'm 23. And the maintenance after each flight, you go into maintenance and you fill out the forms and you write up anything that's wrong with the airplane and you record how much how many hours you flew, how much gas you took, whatever. Uh, it's called the maintenance debrief. And the the guys have a scam going where if you call the aircraft code one, meaning there's nothing wrong with it, meaning less work for maintenance, they give you a piece of candy. So these stupid little half a cent Jolly Rancher candies are effective at getting aircrew to not write up things that are wrong with the airplane. I don't like Jolly Ranchers as much as the next guy, um, but um, I write up the airplane all the time. So the maintenance guys would constantly ask me when I showed up if I had my permission slip to fly the airplane, if I had a permission slip from my mom. So it's like, no, I do not have a permission slip from my mom. And we'd go on. And then I went home for Christmas leave. And I saw mom and I said, mom, I, I need a permission slip. And so she takes, she goes one step further. Mom takes Winnie the Pooh stationery. Okay. And she writes in it to whom it may concern my son, Michael, has permission to play with his phantom today. Signs it, stick it in an envelope. I throw it in my helmet bag, just waiting for the next guy, you know, to play the, do you have a permission slip card? And sure enough, I come back from a flight. I go into Maine. Some guy says, do you have your permission slip? Bam, the card comes out, slapped on the desk, opened up, and there it is. My son, Michael, has permission to play with his phantom today. <laughs> Never got the question again, um, but it did make for a story. So yes, I got some things about you know uh, the the 
the age piece and not having a lot of it and looking. I mean, when I first showed up at the squadron at Spangdalem, I was largely ignored for two or three weeks because a lot of folks thought I was a visiting Air Force Academy cadet. It was the summer. <laughs> they didn't look at my wings. They didn't look at my shoulders. They just see this guy. Oh, it's got to be a cadet. And we had cadets in the squadron for, you know, two weeks over the summer. So when I'd been there for three weeks, people started to realize, oh, he's still here. It gave me time to get my feet underneath me. It actually wasn't bad. That, that's come uh, full circle, though, in terms of you you now having these youthful looks. And you were talking about your college-age son earlier when, before we hit record. Um, so it's, it's it's you know, I guess the, the, all the old-looking people who are your cohort uh, are now maybe uh, no longer laughing. Yeah, they're older-looking now, and I still look studly and young. <laughs> I'm, I'm older. Tell, tell us about world records. Tell us about something that... Uh, and then, and then we'll get into the, the 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 cockpit thing. But give us an example of a world record that you know has been set or you've been involved in. Ah, okay. So, um, great straight line. So Kevin Dunchy and I set the world record, as far as we know, for the number of cables and barriers taken in a single pass in the F four Phantom. So all good stories have to start out with no shit. There I was. It's a Southern Watch mission. Uh, Kevin Dunchy's in the front. I'm in the back. We take off. From Dahran, Saudi Arabia, head north, full load of weapons. Two harms, two AIM-7s, three fuel tanks. Actually, the configuration, pretty much it's in the picture that's behind your cranium right now. Um, and we're headed north to cover the southern no-fly zone. And we're passing through about 4,000 feet, and the jet gives a kick. And Kevin says, like all good pilots say, was that you? Because it could have been me bumping the stick. It was not me. And just as I deny it, you know, the airplane gives another kick and starts an uncommanded left turn. Uncommanded flight control inputs are bad, and it starts bouncing us around. So Kevin gets on the paddle switch, which is on the stick. It's uh, at the bottom of the hand grip, and you pull on the paddle switch whenever something weird happens with your flight controls, because that disconnects the automatic flight control system. Um, And you go basically to straight hydromechanical flight controls without any assistance. Um, But that in the F-4 takes about eight seconds, as many as eight seconds. And we're getting bumped around so much that he could easily have come off the switch and come back on, uh, which is what he thinks he did. So because we got more than than, uh, eight seconds of bouncing around. He calls on the radio, says we're in a left-hand turn back to base. Well, that's sort of true. We're in a left-hand turn because that's what the plane's doing. And the base is behind us. So true, we're in a left-hand turn back to base. He does not actually communicate that we have nothing to do with this. Um, and there we go. And just as I'm about to say, blow the tanks, he says, I'm blowing the tanks and the two wing tanks go spiraling off full of gas back to the Saudi Arabian desert where they probably came from in a less refined form. Um, never found those by the way. And, you know, we start heading back toward the base. And at this point, the bouncing stops. Okay. Because he's held the switch long enough. But the panel is lit up like a Christmas tree. Master caution, rights generator out, bus tie open, windshield temperature hot. I mean, we've got a whole bunch of things on the the caution and warning panel. And this is not good. So we got to figure out a checklist item. And what really throws us is the windshield temperature hot. That light should not come on. Okay, what the, the, the reason it comes on is that we don't have a windshield wiper. Uh, the F-4 ducted bleed air, which is more than 1,000 degrees centigrade when it comes into the tube, and blasts it on the bulletproof front windscreen to blow the rain away. And that's intended to be used only when it's raining and you're on final approach and that kind of thing. 
But if your windshield temperature gets too hot, that light comes on. Well, that light's on. And that means to us that bleed air is blowing where it shouldn't be blowing. And that means a bleed air duct failure. So the checklist for bleed air duct failure is very short. And it's not one of those ones you have to memorize, but essentially I know it anyway. It is check to see if you are on fire. If you are not on fire, land as soon as possible. If you are on fire, eject. That's it, that's the checklist. Because the bleed air comes under such high temperature and high pressure that it can actually cut hydraulic lines, electric lines, and skin and bulkheads with a jet of high pressure air. Um, so that's bad because the bleed air ducts are where your fuel lines, hydraulic lines, electrical lines, that, that can cause a catastrophic loss. And in fact, the last F4G we lost um, to a mishap was lost to a catastrophic bleed air duct failure. So here we are, we think we bleed air, air duct failure is our problem. Um, we got to land this sucker because we are not obviously on fire. We've jettisoned the wing tanks. We're still full of fuel. Kevin elects to try and feed the center line rather than dump the center line in Half Moon Bay because he doesn't want an oil slick washing up on the beaches. And he comes back around for a high-speed, heavyweight approach onto the runway at Daron. You know, we've declared an emergency. We're coming in. And Kevin is a first brick kind of guy. Lands the airplane on the first brick of the runway because runway behind you is not useful runway. However, because we're heavy, it means our angle of attack is higher than it usually is, which means our nose is higher up than it usually is, which means our hook is hanging lower than we think it is. And as the mishap report later revealed that the runway markings had been sandblasted off. Um, so it wasn't clear to tell where the overrun ends and where the runway begins. And as we're coming in, the hook snatches the MA1A, which is a net type barrier, um, and basically tears through it like it's not there. But that kicks us a little bit of airspeed. So we engage the back nine cable, which is at the end of the runway, which is a steel cable with a couple of tons of anchor chain actually on the, uh, uh, as part of the weight. Uh, and we rip that sucker right out of the ground. I mean, all the moorings gone and it's not doing anything for us. That actually gets us on the ground because we engage that cable. We engage the first barrier at about 210 knots, um, which is much quicker than our normal landing speed of about 170. Um, again, higher landing speed because you have more fuel. You, you add knots to your landing speed when you're heavier weight. And we still have the ordinance. So, you know, it's not unexpected that we're going to be hot on, uh, on final approach. Slams us to the ground, the main gear slam, they take it, the nose gear slams, both nose gear tires burst and we suck rubber into both engines. And we're now at 140 knots. And I know this because I'm looking at the airspeed indicator as we're trundling down an unusually rough ride on the runway. And I have just enough time to think, oh, this is bad. <laughs> when the hook catches the third cable, which is the back 12, which is the strongest of the three cables. And that brings us to a halt. And we're sitting there, you know, in a stationary F4 with the engines running, but we're a little bit nose down, more <laughs> nose down than I would normally have expected because we have compressed the forward strut so that there's no silver showing and our tires have gone. And I say to Kevin, did we lose the nose gear? And he says, I don't know. Let's get out. So he shuts the engine off. We hop out, we get out, we walk around the airplane. 
and there it is. I mean, we we have set the world record: one cable or one barrier, two cables, one pass, and brought to a screeching halt. Minor mishap, only about thirty thousand dollars worth of damage. Uh, when a J seventy nine takes rubber in the engines, I asked the maintenance guy. I said, well, "What do you do about rubber tires in the engines?" He says, "Oh, we just we we might have to blend a couple of blades." And I say, "What's that mean? You take a file to him?" He says, "Yes." It's like, <laughs> "All right, J seventy nines, gotta love them." The cause of the mishap was not a bleed air duct failure. The cause was an intermittent right generator under frequency. So what happens is the, the F4, like many McDonnell Douglas fighters, has two separate electrical systems, one powered by the right generator, one powered by the left generator. There's a switch called a bus tie, which when everything's working, it is closed, or sorry, it's open um, or closed depending on the power flow. So if you lose a generator, the bus tie is supposed to close, tie both buses together, and you run everything off of one generator. Simple, fail-safe, almost. We had an under-frequency, so when the generator went under-frequency, the system thought, oh, right generator has failed, and closed the bus tie so that the left generator could power everything. But it hadn't failed. So it opens up again, but it thinks it's failed. So it closes again. So what we had was an intermittent right generator out bus tie open and those lights were on, but the bus is actually opening and clothing, closing and sending power surges through our flight controls. Also not in the checklist and not in the simulator. This is where we get a little checklist change with our name on it is when you have a right generator out bus tie open the windshield temperature hot light always comes on regardless of what the windshield temperature is. It just was one of those things that nobody had ever had a mishap, so it never makes it in the checklist because nobody ever noticed. Wow. Um, so that's it. So we had a, you know, we had a safety meeting. We said, hey, this is what went wrong. We're going to do a change to the checklist, and then we're off. And that was it. World record holders. Woohoo! How did that feel then uh, as a, um, well, obviously you weren't a passive um, participant in that because you were going to call for the tanks to be jetted and presumably you, you handled some of the comm but you know you're really along for the ride in the back seat how did that feel um so i was busy and because i've got he's got his hands full kevin's got his hands full with the jet uh so i got the checklist which i said is very very simple <laughs> and you know so we're it's a it's a combination of discussions because my caution warning panel is not necessarily the same as his uh there are minor differences they didn't come into play but you have to make sure that you're all seeing the same thing uh, and try and diagnose the problem. And because we had something that was definitely unusual, um, we misdiagnosed our problem. Uh, and, you know, we got we got dumped on for that uh, by the DO. But it's like, yeah, you do something better in that situation. We're dealing with a condition that is not in the checklist. Uh, and in my view, you can't go wrong. If it looks like a bleed air duct failure, treat it like a bleed air duct failure. Um, because the, the catastrophic nature of not treating it a bleed air duct failure, like a bleed air duct failure is bad. You lose the airplane, you might lose a crew. So we got the airplane back and all was well and good. So, but at the end, when we're coming in on final approach, I have nothing to do, but make sure I know where the ejection handle is. And I know where the ejection handle is. Um, and then we're just, uh, you know, Kevin flies that in and I'm kind of cheerleading silently because I don't want to break his concentration. So it's a long four mile final approach, but not as long as usual because we were at above 200 knots. <laughs>
you uh, you mentioned a few minutes ago when you were talking about the configuration of the jet, the picture behind me. This was in the Wild Weasel Part 2 with uh, Bassa and, um, and E.T. and uh, T-Bear and yourself. Um, I don't know if anyone noticed, but there's a little hole in that building uh, above my shoulder here. There's a hole. Yep. There's a hole. Um, got time to quickly talk about what that hole's all about and why that F4 is flying in the foreground? Ah, yes. Was that Bassa's story or yours? I don't remember who told that well, story. Well, so it's it's... I don't know where I got it. Um, so Basa was part of the Northern uh, operation, um, which was called Proven Force out of Insulik Air Base. And they, later on in the Gulf War, they uploaded Maverick missiles. Uh, now a Maverick is a big, you know, 800 to 1,000 pound, depending on the variant, uh, anti-tank missile designed in the late 60s, fielded in the early 70s. But we had the D model and it had an imaging infrared seeker. That was the only night vision equipment the F-4 ever had. Okay? And so like, you know, we'd fly around with, a, uh, with this and you could see things at night and things at night are cool. But what you see at night is not necessarily what you think you see at night. So we've got a, a, a flight of weasels out in the northern no-fly zone and they see this radar dome. It's gotta be a radar dome, right? It's a dome, it's on top of a ridgeline. Their job is to kill radars. We're going to put a Maverick in that dome. And so I don't know who did it. Okay, guys, shoot a Maverick. Well, it's not a radar dome. That's a stellar observatory, probably with a reasonably expensive tele uh, telescope in it. And that hole in the side is caused by, that's what happens when a Maverick flies through your dome. Okay, I don't know what happened on the inside, but it probably was not pretty because, you know, telescopes have a lot of glass and stuff and, and they don't like explosions. Uh, so that is the story of the dome, but this was actually uh, northeast of the green line. So that's in Kurdish-held territory during the no-fly zone. So we would often set up cases where we're gonna fly by it and we've got our little, you know, instamatic, possibly disposable 35 millimeter camera, you know, plastic lens on the front of a uh, roll of film and we take a couple shots. And so that's one of those shots from one of the northern no-fly zone missions, uh, you know, sometime after the 561st Fighter Squadron stood up at Nellis. That's 579, which is a great airplane. Uh, and so it's a good shot. I have no idea who took it. I know I have photos like this, but I know pretty much everybody has photos like this. So I wish I knew who got this one because this is a good, good one. But the astronomers at that observatory must have thought you were complete Neanderthals. Um, yeah, if they hadn't already abandoned it, um, you know, at the time, uh, or, you know, if they were, if they had the telescope open because they like looking at any aircraft fire through a telescope, I mean, you'd never know. I, that's the kind of thing I would do. Uh, so, uh, to our knowledge though, there were no complaints of, you know, hitting a civilian, uh, facility. So I don't think there was any real danger. And in any case, the, uh, the guy in a telescope that big, uh, somebody is not, chances are looking at the back end of it uh you know with the naked eye um through a little a little viewfinder plus there's a little toy one on the left looks like they can, they can go and use that one instead yeah so that that's definitely a little toy one and and uh i i just i would have loved to go on a hike uh to check it out but that was not you know an opportunity if i was walking around northern iraq i probably wasn't in a hiking mood <laughs> All right, so let's talk rear cockpit F4G. Let's talk rear let's, cockpit. Let's see, if, let's see if we can make this work. 
Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna walk you through the rear cockpit in an F4G. Oh, and it's, sorry, bef before you start, Sabi, I I just should say this is part of the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force um, at. Um, I've been there. Wright Patterson Air Wright, Force Base, Ohio. That's the one. Fantastic museum. My favorite museum of all time, even though I just forgot its name, but genuinely is. And their website has a bunch of these um, virtual um, sort of their 360 type images. And that's what we're using here. I'll put a link in the description uh, so that anybody can go and have a look at this. But just a shout out to them for this phenomenal piece of uh, content for enthusiasts and, and sort of nerds like me alike. And then um, they continue. <laughs> yeah, so the airplane that's here is 697263. And it's uh it's in Air National Guard colors because they were the last guy to fly it. But this airplane had my name on it when it was at Nellis. Um, and so this is one of the two airplanes that had my name on the side, the other being 697212, um, both of which have survived. Um, and this one's in the museum. I walked into the museum. You know, and, and when I go to Wright-Patterson, I try to get to the museum because it is phenomenal. It definitely gives Duxford a run for the money. Actually, honestly, it blows Duxford away, but I, I don't want to get into that. No, it um, does uh, Except, you know, Duxford has a Spitfire. Um, so, you know, there's that. Uh, so this was my airplane at one point in time. So I'll go through the back cockpit and we're going to start in the top center uh, and hope that I remember what all this stuff is for. Now, one of the things I had to look up as I'm preparing this, because I'm looking at the back cockpit, it's like, oh, man, I got to remember what all this stuff is for. Uh-oh, there's a hole. There's a <laughs> hole in the top of the cockpit. What the heck is there? And I start looking at cockpit diagrams. And because the G models were kind of hand modified, um, I didn't know what was there. Um, but I figured it out. That's the clock. That's where the clock went. We had a little clock with a little stopwatch. And you think, man, it's an analog clock. And boy, what use is that? That's hugely useful. We use the stopwatch all the time um, because we didn't have things like fuel flow indicators or digital counters that told us how much gas was in the fuel tank. So when we hooked up to a tanker, we might hack the clock. So we knew how long we'd been on and approximately how much gas we'd taken. Um, the pilot sets his so that when he selects the centerline fuel tank, he knows it's going to run dry about 30 minutes later. Um, so we use the clock all the time. But you'll notice big picture is that there is not a whole lot of forward visibility. So if you can see the mouse at the right quarter panel here and the left quarter panel, there's a little teeny tiny gap. The only real purpose of that gap is to pass piddle packs or granola bars between the front and back seat. Or if your pilot is Dennis Malfer, you pass both because he whines when he's hungry and he has a bladder the size of a small grape. But that's just, you know, that's normal Wizzo care and feeding, right? Uh, you know, Dennis was a fantastic pilot and one of my favorites. So the, there's even a handhold that's underneath behind all this stuff that you can no longer get at. That's why these additional little hand uh, grips have been bolted onto the bulkhead because they obscured the handhold with a couple of things. So what we have. We've got our clock. We have the normal old style whiskey compass in which the only thing electrical is the light. We have a couple of floodlights for lighting up the cockpit. And we've got uh, a bunch of lights that tell us the KY-58 mode. KY-58 is a secure radio that was at the beginning and still remains a complete piece of trash. Um, the worst secure radio ever fielded. Um, the KY-28 was 
fielded in Vietnam. It was compromised. And so they fielded the KY-58, which was no better, but it had a different number. Um, then I have a, uh, off the light, I've got some, uh, a couple misplaced warning lights that tell me, you know, something might be going wrong. And now in the up top, I've got an instrument cluster, vertical velocity indicator, airspeed indicator, uh, attitude indicator, altimeter, old style, you know, spinning. I love these altimeters. Um, you know, my, my ADHI, uh, for navigation, if I could point to a VOR or a TACAN, I mean, old style stuff. And it's also got my compass wheel, uh, which is handy. And then this is my, uh, ILS as if I were ever going to fly an ILS, but, um, my course indicator with its little outer beacon light, which I also never noticed. And then right here, white is a shoot light. So one thing, when you want the pilot to fire a missile, you do not say fire. You say shoot. <laughs> fire lights are different from shoot lights. Shoot lights mean you have a lock onto the target and it is in parameters. Fire lights mean you have a fire. Totally different. So the pilot has four of these shoot lights um, around the cockpit, there are these flashing white strobes that get your attention that you're in parameters, like the Wizzo isn't going to know that you're in parameters. Um, and I have this one little shoot light to let me know that the pilot's shoot lights are flashing, uh, which I should know because I'm the one that got the lock. <laughs> All right, so we're going to move on down. And I don't think I can zoom in. Oh, yeah, yes, I can. All right. So here's my master caution light stuck over here on the side. Um, and here's my teeny tiny warning and caution panel on the left, okay? Note that the guy up front has a whole bunch of them and the guy in back has eight of them, okay? Plus another like the radar cooling off and the nav system out, which are scattered around. So I really have 10 lights to the whole panel that's in the front, which is why the panel has to be read to me. Um, but the real piece here is I have the APR-47. This is bar none the best piece of radar homing gear ever installed in a fighter aircraft. And so this big dinner plate size scope off to the left is my PPI, my plan position indicator. I'm in the middle of it and it has concentric rings. And all those little buttons allow me hardware selectability. You know, how many threats do I wanna see? Do I wanna see all 15 or do I wanna see one? I want to see all 15, just in case anybody was doubting. Various display buttons. What's my outer range ring? I can go from 10 with uh, a range ring every two miles. I can go out to 200 with a range ring every 40 miles. Um, I have a threshold, so I can actually put in some attenuation. That's I put some resistance into the system, and it drops out the low, uh, in the low signal strength signals. Never used it. Um, I have a recorder number. I have an expand, which gives me a momentary zoom. Uh, and then, uh, like you'd expect, I can adjust the t intensity. And over here, I have a bunch of selector buttons where if I want to see everything, every radar, I just hit the all button. That's the way I flew it. But if I only wanted to see SAMs, I could hit the SAM button. You know, or only SAMs and AAA, I can hit the SAMs and AAA. And then if it's suppressed, if there's a signal out there that is suppressed, that button actually flashes, saying there's a signal under this button that I'm not showing you on the scope. Again, I never used it. This is the mouse button. You will note it is not a mouse button. It is a two-position spring-loaded switch. And so what I had for the emitter of interest was a diamond that went over the emitter I was interested in. And it started at the, the number one priority based on what the computer was programmed to see priorities. 
And every time I pressed it down, it would skip down a priority. And if I got lost, I just put the switch back up and it went to the number one. So I'm basically step, 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 step. If I want to take a look at the fourth priority uh, emitter, um, I go step, 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 step. And now the diamond's over whatever happens to be number four, because the computer priority is not my priority. The computer doesn't know. Um, it knows a pre-programmed thread priority. It knows how strong the signal is. You know, I know where the strikers are going to be and what system is a threat to them. And when I put a guy into the diamond, you see this little digital display? These are little LEDs. Tells me the range. That's a decimal point, by the way, and bearing to the emitter. Uh, and that was freaking awesome. Uh, that That is an amazing capability. And the way the system worked... Uh, was using all those wonderful antennas to constantly draw automatic lines of bearing until it triangulated on the, uh, the target. Um, so that's the left side of the scope. And that's what you know, most guys spend all their time sucked into. The pilot has a repeater of this scope that is much smaller, um, only a couple inches in diameter. The right side is also uh, APR 47. And these are all leftover buttons from when we carry the AGM 78 standard that were um, renumbered okay, to do various functions. Um, like for example, you could K-mark a guy. Okay? And a K-mark would just mean you could take one guy and artificially uh, mark him so it was easy to get back to. Uh, you could hit the EOB memory button, which would memorize your electronic order battle at the time and dump it in a digital storage. Um, some of these are left over, like the G bias button was when you had a G bias strike. Uh, you know, this is the magic button, the target handoff button. When you hit the target handoff button, you just took all the data on the guy, the emitter under the diamond, and you handed it to the harm. And you said, hey, here's his street address. And that's considered a short-term handoff. If, if, uh, uh, if you didn't shoot within seven seconds of making a handoff, your handoff was stale and you had to re-handoff. And then various steady lights, uh, like for example, the sequence for launching a harm is to press the handoff button, look for a ready light up here. If you're lucky, you'd get an act light, which tells you the harm already sees the thing you just handed off and then you shoot the missile. So various buttons and again, intensity, uh, these are all intensity uh, displays for your various scopes. You've got a digital readout for the frequency in megahertz, the PRF and pulses per second. Uh, the approximate range, depending on what mode you're in, or pulse width, depending on what mode. This scan range thing changed uh, based on what mode you're in. And that's all tied to this scope. So this scope is, you know, the attack scope. What this really is, this is an old style oscilloscope. Okay, and you can see this by the time base switch in milliseconds so that you could look at, you know, the pulse shape of the radar. Um, and you could attenuate it, uh, making it shorter because you'd put in uh, you'd put in some resistance. You could vary the time base is is the course adjustment here. You have fine adjustment here. What does that all do? Um, that the only thing and I used I was one of the EWOs who who actually used the scope um, is I was looking for a blip to time the signal strength often on a rotating. So if uh, if it takes nine seconds to go around. Uh, then I know it's an acquisition radar. You know, if it's a steady uh, stream, I know it's a different kind of radar. So, and you could turn this into the attack mode, which is just like the ILS scope with a little crosshatch on it, except that um, 
uh, it put the emitter under the diamond was put on the scope. Uh, that function was not particularly useful um, and was rarely used. So a lot of EOs ignored this portion of the APR 47. This was the pan scope. This was great. This had a trace and a whole series of lines. And you can see just faint burn-in lines uh, on the image. You can see where the lines have burned in, horizontal lines here. And that was all the bottom of our frequency range up to the top of our frequency range in different chunks. Every beam that the system saw, and that could be as many as 200 beams, went onto that scope. Um, as a little helper, if you put the diamond over a guy on the left side, you would get a diamond underneath his little vertical trace. And all these are, it's vertical lines that are basically your signal strength. Um, for every one of the beams. So if I had a bar lock, which is an acquisition radar with six beams, a bar lock B, and I put the diamond over it, I would get little diamonds under each six of those beams. Uh, I loved this scope. Uh, that was amazing. Uh, and then these, again, these are the old AGM-78 band suppression numbers. And since I never had AGM-78s, I had no idea what they did. Um, and then these were, this was key. This is your audio volume. You know, and this is the ability to move a cursor. So you could actually find a signal on the scope and force it onto the main scope. Um, and that's what this these functions were for. I, I never did that except to figure out how it worked. The audio, we had a separate antenna that was there to provide audio to my headset so I could listen to the SAM uh, or the radar. And that was huge. The ability to listen to a radar was amazing for target ID. So frequency, PRI, and pulse width only get you so far. Uh, because like you take, uh, you know, you can take a look at a, the little maritime radar that you see on boats, that little white uh, disc on top. I can easily find 50 ambiguities for that radar, things that look just like it, and two of them are threat systems. Um, so if you could listen to it, you could tell right away. And that's something that's been lost in later systems because uh, EWOs didn't design them or write the requirements. Let, Stubby, uh, let me let me ask you about that. Just, yeah. just expand a bit more on, on how that works. Then. So we had, uh, or I had um, Dave Harris, Super Harris, who was an, an EWO on the EF-111. And I think he said from memory, he had to memorize the audio um, signatures of 200 threat systems or something like that to be an EF-111 EWO. And that's what they did. And it was standard and they would revise their knowledge every so often and so on. Did you do the same thing? And, and why would you... Because one thing I'm not sure about, then it doesn't make sense to me, is if this computer is so clever that it can take up to 200 of those little strobes and put the top 15 on that left display that um, with the sort of concentric rings, um, why do you then have to listen to the raw audio in order to disambiguate it, um, you know, the one one threat system from a civilian system or, or, or vice versa? Right, okay, so that was a bunch of questions. So I only, in, in electronic warfare school, your first simulator when you go into EWO school is the signal ID simulator where you pretend you're in an RC-135. And as I recall, um, you had to memorize somewhere under 100 signals and they gave you 20 in the simulator. Okay, most guys get 100% uh, because by the time you're there, you figure it out and they, it's your first sim. So they don't wanna quite, they'll, they'll thump you like a baby seal later. Um, but in this simulator, you have to recognize things and there's differences. So the, um, the SA2 is a rattlesnake. Uh, the SA3 is very distinctive. It actually goes through three phases. It goes through a high PRF, which is rattlesnake-like. So it's like a hyperactive rattlesnake who's had too many energy drinks. 
um, and it shifts from low PRF to high PRF and then goes into a steady tone. Those are all different radar modes. Um, the F-18 sounds like a piccolo. Uh, the F-15 sounds like somebody's throwing glasses against the wall in the Oak Club. Not that I know what that would sound like. Um, the Hylark radar for the Russian MiG-23s and uh, some models of MiG-25, that had a conga beat, believe it or not. It was just this radar with a conga beat. It was immediately identifiable. The computer, and remember that the computer behind this system, uh, when it was fielded, had 64K. And it is using a program language built for the Apollo program in the late 60s by the guys at MIT. Um, and so it can only measure so many things. And when it measures frequency and PRI and pulse width and looks this up in a table in its computer memory and says, oh man, I got 50 emitters that match this frequency, PRI and pulse width because I'm only measuring three things. That's all I can measure because that's all the system's designed to do. And that's all the compute, the processing capability it has. So I'm going to give ID it as the highest priority of those things. But by listening to it, you can immediately sort for a great many things. Uh, you know, uh, the only, the, the, the only problem is like a continuous wave signal is just a hiss. It doesn't matter, you know, whether it's a continuous wave for system A or system B, it's just a hiss um, if you're listening to it. But you were able to get great signal ID and you were able to determine what mode it was in. Now, a modern system can do better than frequency PRI and pulse width, but that's do better on the bench in theory. Uh, audio ID is just the thing. Okay, that um, makes sense. All right, and the last thing is uh, uh, on the, uh, you'll notice warning, possible burn hazard underside. These are cathode ray tubes, as you can tell, because they've got stuff burned into them. This thing gets freaking hot. And then at the top here, actually for air shows, we have this panel that folds down and locks into these two holes so that we can show people a cockpit in the air show and they've only got a blank black panel. Uh, also, there were certain times there's a code which we could enter into the system that would uh, uh, completely disable it. We would dump everything. Uh, and it, it suddenly, it's just a brick. Uh, and all the software uh, and data is just gone. Um, Would it burn the hardware? Was it? Was there an explosive component to it too? Nope. Nope. It just wiped all the, and you could reload it. I mean, it was a pain in the neck for the maintenance guys, but it was the kind of thing you did when you were uh, turning the aircraft over to like the depot for maintenance is that essentially declassified the system with its full load. It's classified. It's, it has to be handled as if it's classified material. Once you dump it on uh, are classified elements to it, but it's a whole lot easier to deal with. So where's that switch then? Where would you, Oh, so the way you programmed this computer, oops, lost control. See this teeny tiny little control panel? This is it, okay? This is how you did all your data entry. Here is your pad, okay? And here's your number pad. Some of these numbers have multiple functions. Um, and so if I wanted to tell the computer that I had a SIM plug instead of a real harm that I have a, a plug that's in the pylon. It's pretending to be a harm. I have to go to address 77. So I go plus seven, seven, and I hit enter display twice, which is this button. 
Uh, hit it once, it says enter. I hit another. And every time you press that button, you press it twice. That's your enter button. And now I've opened up address 77. And then I go plus one, enter display. And with those two programming moves, plus 77 and plus one, I have now told the computer that there is a simulation plug on my station and not a real harm. So that I get the appropriate symbology on the scope. Um, the code, it was a five digit code and you would enter the address and then you would go plus whatever and enter display and bang. And that's how you dumped all your uh, memory and stuff. Ah, okay. and uh, you... You, could, go ahead. You, you could force the computer to do certain things or to add little functions by taking an address. Uh, like I mentioned an acquisition light. If I wanted to enable that feature to see if the harm is gonna give me an acquisition light, it would be address 78 plus one. And if I wanted to clear out that function, I'd open up address 78 and I'd add plus zero. Um, if I wanted to force the computer to identify something, like say the computer is misidentifying a signal and I know it's target number 168, I'd enter the address and I'd enter 168. And then if I decided it was right in the first place, all I had to do was open that address and enter a minus one and it would clear it out again and go back to computer control. Sorry, I cut you off. No, that's okay. This, I, I was I was going to ask whether you had um, to program the phantom. Remember we talked about on, in, in the second while we were part about the phantom display in terms of the phantom range. You could put these simulated or synthesized threats on the into the computer. Um, was that the same method? Was there no data transfer yes. cartridge, no data transfer ah, module? Good question. This is the data transfer module. Um, push to release, it's, um, I mean, heck, I think those got up to like 64K in the later models. Um, and that contained, you could actually program uh, a lot in this. So I could program my electronic order of battle. So rather than have the generic worldwide load, I could say, I only want to look for these emitters because I know that the Iraqis don't operate SA-10. So I'm not going to waste time. I'm not going to waste computer scan time looking for an SA-10. I'm not going to waste computer scan time looking for an SA-15. Uh, so you can trim that down. So you always, you, you can do that on a computer for mission planning, and then you load it up uh, and you you enter the appropriate code and it squirts that and you're good to go. Now, I never trusted that. And I never trusted the EWO that flew the airplane before me. So on every combat mission, I would completely reprogram my scan tables and my uh, targeting data from scratch using that keypad. So during the time when you're wasting an hour flying to the tanker and the pilot's doing the crossword puzzle because the Intel guys would put the, the crossword puzzle in our, the Stars and Stripes crossword puzzle in our daily Intel packet, I would be reprogramming the system from scratch and visually verifying that everything I wanted was in place. Um, so you, the system did a lot for you automatically uh, but it was designed, particularly in the later software loads, for the EWO to be able to tailor it exactly how they wanted it. And since I was the representative, the, the ops rep for a number of those tape designs, literally the system was designed to do the things that I really wanted it to do. And I set it up to do those things every sortie. There's a, there's a little control stick down there. Uh, did you interact with that for anything other than the radar work? Or I mean, did you ever really use the radar? All the time. But I'll get there. You're jumping ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm about to go I'm, to the fuel gauge. I'll, I'll put myself on mute. No, no, no. All right. So fuel gauge. 
This is freaking amazing, a digital fuel gauge. It doesn't tell how much fuel is in your tanks uh, externally, just internally. Um, and F4s up till the E-model did not have fuel gauges in the back because the WISO didn't need to know how much fuel you had. You could just ask the pilot. I can't imagine uh, thinking that way because yes, I need to know how much fuel we have. Um, and so, because what you would say is how much fuel we got. And he'd say, looking good, which means he's got less fuel than he wants you to know about. <laughs> fuel gauge, love them. Over here, this is a range rate and not. So this is a radar. This is for when you lock the guy up and you're going to do a visual ID. And you needed to know how fast you were closing or opening you know, your range, what the closure was. You had these this needle, which told you how fast you were approaching the guy. And you had this outer little dial that told you how many thousands of feet from nine down to zero that you were. Actually way more useful than you think it is. Okay, so we're about to get to the radar. Before we do it, this is the Maverick controls. So slave and normal switch, which is where you're pointing the seeker. White hot or black hot, selected right there. Um, this is the gun camera switch, which is long since defunct. Uh, and this is the eject light. If the pilot can't talk to you and you see this turn on and it's not like the light test phase, you eject. That's simple. And for ejection, this is the command selector valve. You can select, uh, right now it's vertical, which means that each crew member ejects independently. Uh, now the F4 is a bonus. If the pilot pulls the handles, the WISO goes first. If the WISO pulls the handle first, the WISO goes first. No matter who pulls a handle in the airplane, the WISO goes first. That's the WISO bonus right there. Um, but if you turn it horizontally, okay, which I almost always did, um, it meant that as soon as my seat completed sequence, the pilot seat would fire. The reality is that most successful ejections in the Phantom were initiated from the back seat because the back seater was not in control of the aircraft. Um, there's my engine instrument, tells me my RPM. There's actually two needles buried under there. And here's my AOA meter, which tells me how much angle of attack we're generating, um, which is uh, important in the F4, and I have an out-of-control story for that uh, to follow there. And here's our, you know, canopy uh, jettison switch. Pull the jettison. Um, although this is the manual unlock, and this is the actual pull the jet, even though this one also says pull the jet, it's not. All right, radar. Let's talk about radar. This is the radar. Um, the whole reason... The Phantom was a two-seat aircraft. Remember, a Navy design was because of the radar. And uh, the radar was designed uh, for fleet air defense. But it's really, really intensive. So a modern radar scans a certain volume of space. It might go back and forth in what we call a four-bar raster. Our radar was a one-bar raster. It was just like the little vision slit on the Cylons from the original Battlestar Galactica. You're just going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth level. Uh, and what the Wizzo would do is they'd twiddle that little thumb wheel to move the elevation of their little back and forth sweep from however many degrees high to however many degrees low. That's how you found things uh, on the radar. Now, this is not a pulse Doppler radar, so every bit of ground clutter shows up. So look down, it was crap. Uh, actually, for most respects, this is a terrible radar. But, you know, if you were over the water, fleet air defense, and you don't have ground clutter, it was a marvelous radar. 
not as good as the Tomcats, but you know, pretty darn good. And these were all the basic controls for brightness and range and so on. Go. Uh, which radar was it? APQ 120? 160? Uh, 120, yes. 120. It was just an upgrade allegedly from the 109 the C and D model had. Really what it was was a 109 with a smaller dish because the nose was smaller in the E model to make room for the gun. Um, this was original. This was called a, uh, a DVST, which is direct view something or other, but it was a cathode ray tube. This model is a DCSG, a digital uh, scan converter group. And that meant that it was a digital cathode ray tube. So it was a whole bunch of little pixels, actually high resolution enough that you did not notice they were pixels. It was kind of television size pixels, really. Uh, and, you know, not a whole lot of modes here. Off, standby, test the display, test the radar, turn it on or go to TV mode because this is how you viewed your Maverick image or if you had a TV guided weapon loaded. Let me let me um, ask you a couple of questions, Star Baby, before you move yep. on then. Um, so two questions. What sort of range would you detect fighter size target then, um, let's say over the sea and um, over over terrain? I mean, I know that's a, a, not a very uh, specific question, terrain. But um, And then the second question, did you ever fly with Tizio? Because you said you flew the F-40. Yes. I flew with Tiz. Okay, so Tizio for the audience is a big old camera on the right wing uh, of the F4. And I flew a couple Tizio E models. It was supposed to be, it's actually a telescopic camera and it was supposed to be uh, for assisting visual identification. The only thing I ever recall using it for was trying to see if there was a really a nudist colony in the north end of Panamint Valley. Uh, there might be, but I don't know. <laughs> Um, that's all I can remember ever using that for. I mean, yes, if you lock the radar on, it would go to your radar lock on. But at that point I had a radar lock on, uh, and I was flying against another phantom in training. So I didn't really need to tell what it was. Um, but that was only, I've, you know, got 54 hours in the F4E. So, um, only a handful of those were air to air training rods, but so yes, what, I flew Tizio. What, what about detection ranges then? So the detection range, so... I would expect to get a contact look up at outside 25 miles, even over land, much farther over uh, water. And I could probably work a contact around 20 nautical miles look down. But the reason I could do that was because of the APR 47, not because of the radar. So because the APR 47, if I'm dealing with another fighter, the other fighter has its radar on, this has the fighter radar, I designate that fighter radar and it tells me the azimuth and elevation of that fighter radar, which means I can move my one bar elevation to match what that display is telling me. And I've got a better chance of picking them up. That's why, um, you know, as long as you kept your radar on, you were handing us data to acquire you with. Um, so let's see, anything else exciting about the radar? Um, the other controls to the radar, I'll just go out over here, are kind of around the throttle. Um, and is the range of the scope, you know, uh, close in, uh, five miles all the way out to 200. Um, the aspect switch was, a if you were manually tracking the guy, okay, that would help set a range rate in. That's insane. Uh, and that never works. 
You have a high G or a low G switch, which was your chaff rejection. It was always in high G, except in this picture. You had a one bar, or two bar raster scan, which is always in one bar, except in this picture. Um, and your display scope, uh, different types of scope, whether it's a 30 degree wide or 120 degrees wide, or whether you're doing ground mapping in the PPI. Let's see, shorter, long pulse about it. This is where the Wizzle's left hand was all the time. These two knobs are the receiver gain. You are constantly twiddling them to try and break out a real contact from the clutter. Uh, you could set a manual velocity if you were manual tracking. Um, there's a couple other air-to-ground modes that are uh, here. But basically, the Wizzo ran it with your right hand on the radar control handle and your left hand on the receiver gain knob. Hey, I just noticed my stick is missing. That's a foul. Um, suffice it to say that uh, the backseat had a stick. Okay. What are we going to get to next? This is leftover nuclear timer stuff, which was also here. And so they took it out and they replaced a uh, uh, this with a little, uh, this was actually LCD, a liquid crystal display. That was some high tech stuff there. Let me tell you, the liquid crystal display, um, to tell you what, which one of 20 radio channels you were on. Um, here you've got your recorder, the uh, which is a three quarter inch tape with um, 30 minutes of tape. So that was your recorder switch. Uh, here was your digital recorder for the APR 47, which we're not going to talk a lot about, but it was really cool. Um, a couple lighting console, uh, these control light to the consoles and the KY 58, uh, which I never ever used um, that I could recall is all down here. Oh no, I guess I tried a, a, a radio check with AWACS a couple of times. Nose gear indications, flaps and slide indications for landing. Inertial navigation system. This is an old, older INS, but still a good one. This is in the RN-101. And you had to align it for seven to 14 minutes before you taxied or you'd screw it up. And then you throw it into nav and you're pretty much good to go. One nautical mile per hour drift, which is as good as a modern ring laser gyro. Here's another kind of thing that shares the radar. This is the APX-80. Um, Vietnam, it was called Combat Tree. And these codes allow you to dial up a guy's mode three code. Um, and like in this case, it's set for, it's off, but it, 1200, which would be a VFR code and interrogate like you were an air traffic control radar um, so that you could uh, uh, find a guy's squawk. Like it's really useful for rejoining the tanker. If they tell you this tanker squawking 3241, you put 3241, you press that little red button on the front of the hand controller, you interrogate 3241. Um, here, the oxygen panel. Here we go. In the other list of things that Wizos don't need are landing gear handles and flap handles, because if Wizos had them, they might lower the landing gear or the flaps. And who knows what would happen then? they might then attempt to land the airplane with the stick and the rudders, which they actually had in back. It's the only way for me to get the landing gear down in the case where a pilot has been incapacitated by a bird is to pull the emergency landing gear handle or the emergency flap or the emergency landing gear handle um, and blow it down. I could not uh, blow the flaps down 
nor could I extend the slats. It was landing gear only, no flap slat. And this is the emergency brake handle, which is a separate accumulator. If we don't have any brakes, I can pull the emergency brake handle. Pilot has handles just like these. Um, this is all radar test stuff. So when we tested the radar, we had to go through a test suite sequence and twiddle this knob. And if you look at this knob, it's got, it's kind of hard to see, but it's got things like resistance values and stuff. We didn't know any of this. We just turned it, did the sequence, turned the knob, looked for a certain value, had a checklist, carry on. Um, intercom control here. We already went over the radar. Throttles, microphone switch, speed brake. I've got a speed brake. Can't lower the landing gear, but I can trigger the speed brake. Um, could you go to cut off um, on the throttles as well? Could you cut no, off? No, the, the backseater could not cut the throttles off, nor could they select afterburner. Okay, really, it looks they really like didn't trust you. they really didn't trust us. It looks like I've forgotten the handle. So I'm thinking that we couldn't lower the flaps, and yet I have an emergency flap handle. So at one time I knew that I could lower the flaps, never had to do it. Here's the volume toll for your uh, missile tone, which is when you had AIM nines and you're listening for a, a good heat seeking tone. This is your chaff and flare dispensers, um, which are manually fired off by this little button right here that says dispense. And if you flip that guarded switch and flip the switch upwards, you dump all of your uh, flares at 10 flares per second. These have to be reset by a dude with an Allen wrench. Um, pressure altitude display how much liquid oxygen you have left, volumes on the VOR. Uh, what have I forgotten? The radio, one radio with an aux radio. Okay, so this is the aux radio. It's just a crystal receiver with 20 channels. So if you wonder why every F4 in the universe has 275.8 as one of their radio frequencies for either the tower or ground, it's because that was one of the frequencies on our aux radio. Receive only. 20 fixed frequencies for the life of the Phantom. The Iranians are still flying with those 20 fixed frequencies uh, on their bases. Uh, but this is a modern, relatively modern UHF radio, uh, have quick uh, two equipped with a guard receiver. So uh, normally I would load all the have quick stuff uh, and the backseater really runs the radio controls even if he or she is not talking on them. And this is my TACAN and my TACAN channel display. And I have a bucket load of circuit breakers, but not as many as I have on the other side. Um, so this is uh, part of the, the flight control um, computer system and it, that's where you rest your in-flight lunch. It's a nice flat surface to put your lunch on. This is that now see Apollo era 1980s okay this is the programming console for the inertial navigation system okay we i can type in coordinates i can save 99 points this and this ties directly to the apr 47 um so i can do a lot of programming this is a pretty good inertial navigation system although it weighed i'm told around a thousand pounds these are low angle high angle weapons delivery timers they're actually completely inactive by the time i got to the f4g this is your console floodlights this is the all-important nuclear store consent switch, okay, in which you can decide whether or not you're going to throw that switch. In order for a nuclear weapon to be dropped from this aircraft, both aircrew members have to consent to release. This is an old SST-181, which is a beacon used for close air support. Um, 
Uh, this allowed you to do updates. And if you wanted to move the ground radar cursors uh, on your radar uh, to make a mark point, you use these and not this. Um, more stall warning volumes. Let's see if we can zoom in. Uh, you know, your ground power switch um, and more circuit breakers. And I think we've gotten to all that until we get to oh, the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force. This is a Martin Baker Mark 7 ejection seat. And this is my G-suit hose. This is the little G-suit button. So the way the G-suit works is that button weighs a certain amount. And as you pull G's, that button gets heavier. And so it pushes down a certain amount and that causes air to flow into your G-suit proportional to the number of G's you're pulling. Very simple, purely mechanical. Do not rest your checklist on that button or your G-suit will inflate like you're the Michelin man. Not that I've ever done that. I've just heard about it. Um, the ejection seat, these are uh, uh, not your ejection handles. Your ejection handle is hidden right here and then at the top of the seat over the top of your helmet. Uh, this is the green apple, the emergency oxygen button. Um, these are your survival kit release and your emergency egress handles if you don't want to eject. And this is where my stick should be uh, and isn't. So is there anything else exciting that this camera will tell? Oh, there's the over the top, the ejection handles. Why do you have ejection handles up there? Because when you pull them, you're going to hunch your back and end up with a spinal injury. It's because <laughs> on takeoff, the stick is all the way back and you can't get to the bottom ejection handle. So one of the many reasons I like the Martin Baker Mark 7. And of course, this is not a clean cockpit. It is a non-air conditioned cockpit that smells like 30 years of vomit and chicken bones. Questions, comments? I, I uh, get, oh, oh, okay, go on then. You finish. AOA indicators for your approach. Not that I ever used those, but they did light up and do light up things. So the chicken bones, don't know where they come from. The vomit, I get. Um, did you get Essex much? Never. Never. No, I, 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 when I was a kid and we were flying over long halls over the Pacific when I lived overseas, um, I was the kid that would be running up and down the aisles when we hit moderate turbulence. <laughs> uh, they don't let you do that now. But kids, don't try this at home. Well, you can't because you don't get moderate turbulence at home. But um, if you did have moderate turbulence, they're going to put on your fastened seatbelt light uh, until you really, really, really have to pee. And then they're going to keep it on even longer <laughs> than that. But in the good old days, you could run up and down the aisles when you're seven or eight years old. So I am not susceptible to motion sickness. Now, when it gets hot, um, there's definitely some thermal stress. And the solution to that is to go to 100% oxygen and breathe deeply. So, so you had no cooling in the cockpit at all? Well, there's mm -hmm. airflow. But where does it come from? Is it coming from the front cockpit? Uh, yeah, well, actually, there's a, see this? Let me zoom in. That's an air vent. That's just like your little airliner air vent, except it's anemic. Mm -hmm. um, and I have an air vent that will blow air upon me. Um, one time, Dave Lucia, Santa Lucia, and I, another one of my favorite pilots, we actually had the airflow system fail. Um, because really, the cooling on this airplane is reserved for the electronics. Um, and, you know, we have this giant, these giant heating units. So I'm fairly certain that on this LED display for the Arnie, I'm fairly certain you could cook a hot dog. 
Um, and these things, there's a warning enough, so it did get hot, but we had a little airflow. Our airflow failed. So up at front, he has a handle to pull the emergency dump valve, which is supposed to get just ram air. It's like air in your car. Um, you know, that failed. Uh, we flew the mission anyway. It was summer in Las Vegas. It was 140 degrees Fahrenheit uh, based on the sensor on my watch by the time we popped the canopy at the end. That's why if you look, I mean, the air conditioning thing is if you look at Phantoms and T-38s, we don't close the canopy until we actually take the runway and we're cleared for takeoff. And there's a whole sequence where by hand signals, you get everybody to close the canopy at the same time, because if you didn't close them at the same time, that would not look cool. And we can't have that. So you go through the silent canopy drill, bang, you know, everybody signals, everybody looks at you, you pull your hand down at the same time you throw the canopy close switch. Uh, and then after the rear canopy seat, the front seats do it. And then everybody's off and, and flying. So yeah, it's it's not a cockpit. The first uh, warm cockpit, uh, not a cool cockpit, rather. The first time I flew the F-16, uh, you know, it was two-seater, obviously, you know, D-model, Block 50. We're flying in red flag in the summer. And I land and the pilot asked me, well, how was it? You know, and I wasn't going to give him anything about his airplane. I said, nice air conditioning. And that's what I left him with. That's my way of calling somebody a pansy boy. <laughs> well, hopefully uh, part three of the wild weasel conversation will, 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 will unearth some of the reasons behind that. Um, you, you talked about canopies then. And earlier in the conversation, you talked about the command ejection valve and um, the backseat going first regardless. Am I correct in remembering that that came from a modification that occurred during Vietnam where they'd figured out that some front seaters or some backseater seats weren't firing because the front seat was going first and it was creating a vacuum or something that was keeping the backseat canopy on so then the backseat couldn't go? Is that? Am I just making that up or did I read that somewhere? You read something like it. Um, so the 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 sequence was always backseater first because that's the sequence you need to have to avoid man seat or, or seat to seat collision when you're moving forward. The assumption always is that the airplane's moving forward, so you get the backseater out first. Uh, to that that way you can have a much shorter time between seats firing. Um, what happened in Vietnam um, was a was a high speed problem that when the rear seat ejected and the rear seat canopy departed, okay, the airflow forces on the front canopy were now too strong at high speed for the, uh, the impulse cartridge that opened this. It was an explosively uh, firing unit that opened the canopy. All you had to do was break the seal and the wind would catch it, but that cartridge was not strong enough to open the front canopy when the rear canopy was gone at high speed. The way we found this out, I don't know whether it was an Air Force pilot or a Navy pilot, um, but the front seater was allegedly uh, a guy who lived in the weight room, which is unusual, you know, when, uh, you know, all your aviators are really um, smoking cigarettes and so on. Fitness, what a thing. Uh, mm -hmm. The guy is strong enough to push open the cockpit far enough to break the seal. The wind catches it. The canopy separates. His ejection seat fires. Um, and then he's recovered by a helicopter out of the Gulf of Tonkin to tell the tale. So the solution to that problem was to make the ejection cartridge that, that separated the front canopy, that, that opened the front canopy, um, that a little bit stronger, and it solved the problem. Um, the seats in a 
phantom will not fire unless the canopy is gone. So you can't see it here as we look back on the seat. Um, you can't see it either, but I've actually got ejection seat handles on the chair I'm sitting in right now. These ejection seat handles, as a matter of fact, because I had a pair and what better to do than put them on my office chair. But back here, there's a little pigtail. It is a coiled cable that's attached to the back canopy and there's an interlock. And so the seat cannot fire with that interlock in place. When the canopy separates, it pulls that cable, pulls the interlock out, and then the seat can fire. But it's mechanically safe until the canopy separates. A modern seat like the F-15E's uh, ACES seat has two simultaneous ejection paths. One runs about a second behind the other. And the first one waits for the canopy to separate. And the second one says, I don't care if the canopy has gone, I'm firing. So the first one will wait for the canopy to separate. And the second one says, if you haven't separated by the time I get around to firing the motors, we're going. And it'll just take you through the canopy. Um, there's no canopy breaker on an F4 seat. So going through the canopy, not an option. There is um, on the canopy in this picture there, there is a manual canopy breaker, isn't there? Did that thing, did you ever expect that thing to you um, to be able to, you know, I think you grab it, don't you? And you're supposed to stab it against the canopy. Yeah, go, so I'm looking go, for that. If you go up, it's attached to the canopy uh, itself. There it's, we go. Yeah. Thanks. I was looking for it along the rail. And so this is the manual canopy breaker tool. And what it's covering is what you would think is a knife, but I would only say it's knife-like. It's got a straight back edge and a curved front edge. Uh, and it's got a little marking on it, say, curved side towards face or something like that. So what you're supposed to do is grip this thing, pull the little pin, it comes out of its holder, grip it, put your other hand behind it and slam it up against the canopy. And the reason you want the curved side towards you is that if it skips on the canopy, it skips into your whiskey compass and not into the front of your helmet. Uh, and in theory, you could break the canopy with that tool. Now, this is the kind of thing that you use when you're on the ground and you have rolled over on your side uh, and you're mostly upside down and the canopy will not separate, you can use this to chop yourself out. Also, I forgot to mention mirrors. So the back seat has three mirrors, okay, left, right, and this one's actually external um, so that you can see behind you. This, this actually gives you a good view of the refueling boom. So the pilot cannot see the refueling boom. So when you're refueling and the guy's putting the, the boomer is putting the, the uh, boom in your receptacle, so to speak, um, the Wizzo actually has a better view of uh, what's going on there. And you'll, you'll narrate what's going on. It's like, oh, yeah, he just bounced it off. Give him a minute, you know, that kind of thing. We didn't talk about, well, you talked through some of the control star baby from a self-protection point of view. You, you showed off those um, where you talked about the chaff and flare buttons. Um, did your screens in front of you tell you if someone was shooting at you? Was that the preserve of the pilot? No. So what we got, and you know, T-Bear mentioned this, one of the things that the APR-47 did um, through some programming magic that's too boring to go into was it determined whether or not a radar system was locked onto you personally. And if a guy was, then his symbol on the scope got what we called track bars, which are basically a cross superimposed above his number. 
And if you saw track bars, your I would say your odds were above 80%. The computer was right. And that guy was tracking you. Uh, in which case it's time for you to go to defensive and your wingman to handle the problem. So, so, and the pilot in the front has a, an RWR display, presumably that would correlate with that. And, um, it's actually a miniaturized version of this exact display. Oh, that's okay. So the one that's up on the dash in the front cockpit, that's the small version of that one. Yes, only okay. he has no controls for it. Um, okay. But for example, let's let's take a harm shot example, which I've kind of gone through. The pilot's going to be aware of what I'm going. Um, but what I'm thinking about, because you can tell what an EWO is thinking about by where the diamond is. The emitter that has the diamond over is the one that, that is probably the one we're thinking about shooting. It's the one we're listening to. And the pilot can see that diamond. Um, and on the radio, I'm going to tell the wingman, I'm working the six. So the wingman's not wasting his time working the same signal I'm working. Okay? If I were the, if we were in the lead aircraft, I might tell somebody to work another threat, but I actually normally covered that in the brief, um, which priorities are mine. I'm going to take the, the twos and sixes. You're going to take uh, threes, eights, and uh, alphas, for example, would be part of the brief. Um, and so when I want to shoot a harm, I've got the diamond over the target. I'm going to say to the pilot, I'm taking the six. He's going to look at his scope. He's going to see the six. I'm going to verbalize, handoff, ready light, one potato. I hit the pickle button, magnum, missile comes off the rail. And that's different because you went on to fly the F-15E. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you can't drop anything from the back of that, can you? So you did have consent control in the back of the F-4G, but not in the back of the F-15E? The backseater can release all air-to-ground munitions um, because the pickle button is every bit as hot, but our trigger is not hot so that we don't inadvertently fire the gun or an air-to-air -air missile or something. That happened in a Tomcat over the Gulf of Sidra in the 80s. Um, but air-to-air uh, -air missile launch is uh, the front seat. The pickle button's enabled for air-to-air -air missile launch uh, in the front. So we can do air-to-ground, but we don't. Why don't we? Because my hand is not on the freaking stick. The Strike Eagle, I have a hand controller on the right side and a hand controller on the left side, and that's where my hands are. They are nowhere near the pickle button. So the only time I you know, ever pickle button uh, things in the Strike Eagle is when we did a cockpit swap, and like the pilot's running the pod and the laser, and I'm flying the aircraft, and you know, I've got to simulate the pickle button. And so I tell guys, I, look, you know, there are, there's altitude, there's heading, there's attitude, and there's airspeed. Pick any three. You can have any three. Uh, and that's what happens when I'm flying. Tell, tell me you did a cockpit swap. No, no, no. It's only a roll swap. Okay. only a roll swap you're swapping the rolls because i've i've heard no. about this before in the striker community guys swapping seats i've heard about it i've never met anybody who will confess to having done it i i i have never met anybody who confessed to having done it um i have been told that it has been done i've been told how it has been done in the phantom um i don't think that that was a that might have been a strike angle thing in the 80s um, you'd have to, did you ask that question? Uh, I was, so I was told this probably early two thousands. Uh, I said, what was the event? And I was told it was a flight to the, uh, the deep, the depot, um, or Robbins or whatever. 
um, and that the two guys had swapped seat, but they sweet seats, but they had kept it very hush hush, and that the Wizzo was um, you know a really experienced guy, and and therefore it wasn't that big a deal. Um, but I never managed to find out who it was. Yeah, so I've I'd never consider it because um, I'm not a frustrated pilot. I'm I'm happy with being chauffeured in and out of the target area. Um, but I the the story I was told was a couple guys on a cross country. Um, where they actually did the cockpit swap and they fueled the aircraft on the Wizzo's credit card so that there was no record of the flight. They didn't record the fuel in the forms. They didn't record the flight time in the forms. And there is no digital system on the F4 that is going to, that is going to tattletale on you. The engines don't have an engine time counter. You know, it's all manually recorded. So as long as he didn't over-G the airplane, and even in the F4, if you over-G the airplane, you punch the G meter off and it goes back down to zero and you're good to go. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, when I talk about a cockpit swap, I'm merely talking a roll swap. The only time I've ever flown in the front seat uh, was in the T6C when I was uh, evaluating the new uh, C model of the T6 trainer. Uh, at Nellis and uh, you know pilot briefed me up and then said all right you're gonna fly in the front seat I said you can't do that he goes I absolutely can so the instructor flew in the back seat and I did the ugliest takeoff ever seen at runway 21 right at Nellis Air Force Base <laughs> um, it's a good thing it's a 200 foot wide runway because I was wiggling back and forth like a worm on hot concrete you, you said you're not a frustrated pilot but what and but you did mention the scenario where the pilot was incapacitated, let's say by a bird strike. What level of training, if any, did you get then in handling the airplane? You know, we're, we're, you, there's an autopilot in the F4G, right? So pilot relief is not too much of an issue. Um, were there p- phases of flight in particular, if he needed to pee or something, where you would fly the airplane? <laughs> there's a story. Okay, no shit. There I was. So. This is a desert calm time period. It's before the Southern New Fly Zone. We're not flying over Iraq, but we are flying over Kuwait. Dahran, Saudi Arabia. I'm a first lieutenant. I'm flying with uh, John uh, Hans um, Wendell in the front seat. And we're coming off the tanker. We're at 28,000 feet. And the... uh, the F-4, when flown from the back and heavyweight, is very pitch sensitive, okay? Because this is just an iron bar. The front seat, you know, connected to a stick grip. The front seat has a transducer box around it, which kind of evens out pilot inputs. I got nothing. This is a bar with a, a hand grip on the top. So it's very pitch sensitive. And John says, hey, I got to pee. And well, no, I take that back. He says, take the airplane for a minute. He does not tell me he has to pee. Just take the airplane for a minute. Take us down to 2,000 feet because we're going to do a low level. I say, fine. So I take the airplane and I'm kind of bumbling around because, like I said, it's very pitch sensitive. We're full of gas. And I said, screw it. So I unload and we go into free fall. And so we're now losing altitude. And I decide, oh, no, I'm probably losing altitude too fast. So I pull four Gs and level off again. And then I decide, no, no, I was right the first time. Bang. We go back in a free fall. I get to 4,000 feet. I do a 4G recovery. I level off at two. Unbeknownst to me, John Wendell is trying to pee in the front seat into this little sponge-filled Ziploc thing called a piddle pack. And as he describes it later, he is waving the piddle pack around the cockpit 
cockpit trying to catch these spherical blobs of offensive faintly yellow liquid as I'm completely unknown to me, jacking the poor guy around. So suffice it to say that he gets a little splash uh, uh, experience in the front seat because he didn't want to tell me that uh, he was going to use a piddle pack because he was afraid I'd turn the aircraft upside down, which I would not have done. There are guys I would have done that to. He is not one of them. Okay, But by not telling your Wizzo and not keeping him informed, bad things can happen to you. So we all end up with some degree of flying skills. Um, you know, obviously I had the, the, the um, ability to just take the airplane and, and, you know, put it where I wanted to put it uh, safely if, you know, and within G limits on my dad. So um, we all had flying skills. Some guys would have taken it as a personal insult if the pilot had ever engaged the autopilot. Um, I'm not one of those guys. I was going to be reprogramming the APR 47 during that time. Well, he did the crossword on autopilot. I was not going to, you know, be flying the airplane. So, you know, I fly occasionally. I need to have some basic kind of skill. Uh, but I'm generally not the guy that says is jonesing to, you know, for some dead time so they can fly the airplane. I actually got much more stick time in the strike eagle um, because there were some exploitable loopholes in the regulations. Oh, really? None of which I'm going to mention because they might still be open. I don't want to, you know, screw it for the next guys. Sure. Well, I think that's, uh, you know, the peeing is a, a great note to end this <laughs> to end this, um, this episode on. So, uh, Starbaby, thank you so much for talking us through that. Thanks for the uh, enlightening and entertaining nature in which you've done it. So we appreciate it. Um, and I'm looking forward to having you back genuinely. I know that our audience really enjoys hearing from you, so they will be delighted to hear that, I'm sure. Thanks for your time. Okay, well, that's totally crazy, but I, you, we can let the audience know I totally appreciate it. Uh, and we'll do this thing again. I got, the, I got an email that, uh, uh, from Steve earlier on saying, you know, this is in danger of becoming the Star Baby show. And I, I emailed back, you say that like it's a bad thing. Uh, so anyway, I, I try to entertain as well as inform. Thanks for tuning in to 10% True. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to subscribe. And if you're on YouTube, hit the bell button to make sure you get notified of the next episode. Thanks and take care.